Hey there, and welcome to another edition of Inside Intercom. So before our team turns the page into 2018, we thought it'd be helpful for listeners to reflect back and share some of the key lessons we've learned here at Intercom in the past year, whether that's been through shipping product and the challenges that came with that, the systems and principles we put in place in 2017, or more generally, what our growth as a company has meant for the ways our teams work and collaborate. So to make sense of the past year, I'll be handing hosting duties over to our co-founder, Des Trainer, who's in conversation with two of our most popular past guests. That's VP of Product Paul Adams and Director of Product Design Emma Connolly. Each opens up about the challenges of shipping nearly 150 product changes in a single year, the value of program management, why we built our own design system in 2017, and how opening up the communication lines between sales and support can actually work wonders for your product team. Speaking of 2018, be sure to check back in two weeks' time. We've got a follow-up to this chat where Dez, Paul, and Emmett break down the product trends they expect to shape the year ahead. In the meantime, if you like what you hear, we've actually released 50 episodes this year around product, design, marketing, and startups, and you can catch them all by subscribing on iTunes wherever you go for your podcast these days. But now, let's hop in the studio where we've got Dez Trainer, Paul Adams, and Emmett Connolly revisiting 2017. You're listening to Inside Intercom. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. Welcome to the Inside Intercom podcast. For a special episode today, I'm joined by our VP of Product, Mr. Paul Adams. Hello, Paul. How you doing, Des? Nice to be here. And Emmett Connolly, our Director of Product Design. Hey, Emmett. I'm also glad to be here. Wonderful. Well, we're all glad to be here. And we're going to talk about, I guess, about kind of the year in review at Intercom and in terms of what we learned, what initiatives we saw. And Paul, we'll start with you. I think in 2017, we had almost counter year to 2016 in some senses. What was the big changes that you made and why? Yeah, the biggest change on the surface was number of projects. So uh, in 2015, we had, I think, about 50 people working across product design and engineering. And we had about just north of 100 customer-facing changes. Right. And in 2016, with more people, you'd expect that we would have more. But we didn't, we had less. Right. I think we had like, depends on how these things, but we had about 50, between 50 and 60. Right. And so at the end of 2016, we were like, hang on a minute. With more people, we did less on paper. And so uh, it was more complicated than that. There was three big projects in 2016. We built our Educate product. We redesigned our Messenger from the ground up. Mm-hmm. And... And smart campaigns. And smart campaigns, right. And so looking back to the end of 2016, I think there's just loads of ways we could work differently. And the problem with big projects is that your customers don't get them for a long time. So each of these projects, Educate and Messenger took about a year. Smart campaigns, I think, was like three to six months. And, you know, with the Messenger, that was a year where we had the same Messenger for a start. So our customers weren't seeing changes. Mm -hmm. But also, you know, it was less clear that we were building something that they would love and value. So in 2017... We said we would try not to do that. We would try to break projects up into smaller pieces, get them from the customers earlier. And we really refined our process to do that. And so we scoped, uh, made scoping a much more deliberate action early, a uh, whole bunch of things. And this year has been amazing, I, I have to say, honestly. Um, we have, coming up to the end of December, we've nearly 150 on our list of product changes. Right, wow. 50 things. Yeah. From a design point of view, Emma, that's a, a shift from like from a small number of big projects. And the nice thing from as a designer, like with a big project, you can kind of conceive the whole thing at once and design it all kind of holistically. 150 changes, each done on its own sort of scope and its own timeline. 
How does that happen with a holistic designer? Did it or did we pay any tax there? Well, it certainly isn't 150 completely random disconnected things, right? And so the Thank approach God. is... Yeah, <laughs> that was a good idea. You sure, yeah. Uh, so the approach was really, um, uh, rather than saying we've 150 things to do, is starting with the big teams that we have and then breaking it down really into 150 releases. And each one of those releases needs to be able to stand on its own. And so a lot of that is around planning and scope rather than design. So is there a, is there a sense of like big design up front and then from there you break it up into like small releases? One of the core principles we have is to think big and start small, which is to do a lot of design thinking and, and try and be expansive in your vision and where you want to get to, but then to get there in many small steps. So think big certainly doesn't mean like do tons and tons of design work up front and then go and build it in small steps. But let's have a fuzzy picture of where you want to get to. Start designing in small steps because you're almost certainly going to have to course correct anyway as a result of the feedback loop that you get from each of those steps shipping. So really it's more of an exercise in, in... keeping your the fidelity of your work in the early stages quite low and yeah. then being able to iterate your way along and, and still roughly stay on that path that you set at the start. As opposed to like having a, a really polished, holistic ground up redesign of like the inbox in January and still be determined in shipping in December, having had like years worth of feedback saying it's not good or whatever. Right? Correct. Like, yeah, okay. Which is a huge gamble from yeah. a design point of view because yeah. you've got to be sure that you've got 12 months worth of great design decisions made yeah. there which is of course highly unlikely for sure yeah and I, I think there's an interesting principle there of just like keeping the fidelity appropriate in some sense so I think like, the closer something gets to like to like fully polished pixel design the more attachment people have to it as well like the more people start like getting excited about it and seeing it whereas I think it's worth being honest about the fact that hey we're going to ship this and not everyone's going to love it and we're going to learn a lot and we need to be open to that mm. a lot of it is a bit like the you know, correcting the common misconception around a minimum viable product as well, which is, you know, launching something that that's pretty a bit shit actually, is how it's often misperceived, Mm -hmm. I think. So the thing that we had to keep in mind is for each of those tiny steps, the quality needed to be really high. So that thing had a chance of, you know, surviving out there in the world on its own. But it's part of this longer story that we're trying to string together. Gotcha. Yeah, I think another thing, actually, an interesting component here was that we embraced program management this year in a big way. And so often the way these things worked is that there was a program in place. And a good example of this is towards the end of the summer, we had this new live chat for sales product for customer Mm. acquisition. And that was actually 15. So in that list of 150, that was 15 of the 50. And so at the start of the project, it was like, hey, here's a program of work. Mm. And these programs have a goal, uh, which in this case was to launch and announce this improvement over a product we already had called Acquire. And we had 15 things and so those 15 were worked on independently as mm-hmm. part of this program. But when they were ready for customers, they'd go to a beta. Yeah. You know, I think some of them we possibly even announced or released to all people. Yeah. And then we would progressively learn as the others were getting built how to improve them. And so by the end of the program, we had like 15 things, many of which were in beta long before the end of that program. And we'd iterated and iterated and iterated. So by the time we got to the announcement, it was yeah. more refined to the point Emma was making earlier. Right. And, so, and in a sense, the announcement was the release of all 15 individual things, but like, but kind of like from a, from a marketing standpoint, it was much more like they'd already been live for a lot of people, but the announcement was like sort of big splash where they all kind of finally meet the world. Yeah. And come together. Yeah, to your question yeah, earlier. Yeah, yeah. They come together. They're connected. Yeah. Cool. Another sort of change in a, 
2017 for us was, I guess, bots. I mean, I think last year on this very podcast, we were sort of saying how bots generally were still at the sort of early stage of the hype cycle, like the the buzz around them, like the, the sizzle was better than the steak in some sense. Do you think that's changed in 2017? I mean, obviously we released our own bot operator within this year. Are the limitations still in play or like, you know, do, do you think that, like you said before, I think bots are supposed to like, you know, they're at best for like simple, automatable, basic tasks. Is that still the take? Yeah, I think it's still the take. I think um, I think a lot of the things a year later are still the same in many ways. You know, I think bots are real. The hype's died down for sure, yeah. uh, which is good. Uh, I mean, this is like a classic, um, there's like names for this curve, and you know, we're yeah. like overhyped and then yeah. dis- you know, trough of disillusionment yeah, and then yeah. the, the Gartner cycle. Hype yeah, cycle the hype cycle, yeah. yeah. And so like we're definitely in the like, stabilization phase of bots. Mm-hmm. Um, I personally think bots are a huge deal for the future. They're going to be a very commonplace thing. I think we'll look back in years to come at today's world where we didn't interact with bots as much as we do or will do in the future and not really understand how we did things in a different way. You know, it'll right. be so prevalent. Um, but it will, I think, predominantly will be for uh, the same like simple, you know, repetitive task. Things computers are much better than humans. What what I'm curious about is like you said like you know and I presume you still say like that they're useful for the like low level repetitive uh, tasks. Yet you're quite excited about them. Is that excitement because there's you just believe there's so many of these low level repetitive tasks that when we when we have bots taking care of them all, it'll you know it'll free up so much more stuff, or is it like is it some net new capability? Like do you think bots are going to automate the mundane, or do you think they actually bring a net new capability to the world? Mm. I think they definitely bring in net new capabilities. I think the 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 quote there's probably I definitely changed that a little bit nowadays and say, yeah. yes, they're low level, they're often repetitive, like they're things that people do mm-hmm. often when computers could do it faster and better. Yeah. But the reason the computers can do it faster and better is often because there's huge permutations happening in the background, like mm-hmm. re- you know, really complex code running. Think about self driving cars as an example. Like mm-hmm. I mean, if you really wanted to go there, you could say that self driving car is a bot in a way. Or that driving is a repetitive task. I don't know if this is, any, yeah. this is a bit of a stretch. Yeah. <laughs> but like yeah. the, a lot of these bots are simple on the face and pretty complicated back at the back. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think, yeah, like there's loads of life that we can automate and people yeah. can go on and do things that are more meaningful. Emmett, from a design point of view, obviously Operator was significant release and we touched on all sorts of new challenges. You know, obviously, our mission is to make internet business personal, yet we released a, a, an actual robot into conversations. How did that all play out within the design team? Yeah, I think we, you know, there was this initial period of hype and then and then we, you know, once we got into experimenting a lot, which we were doing, I suppose, this time last year, quite a bit in the run-up to releasing Operator, we realized that there are some clear things that it does well and some things that it certainly isn't ready for, maybe at a technology level, but also mightn't even be suited to. You know, there's a certain category of, if you're just thinking of having a customer conversation, certain category of customer conversations that are just always suitable, more suited to a human dealing with things that require empathy and problem solving and things like that. But if you put it to a lot of customers and said, hey, like, would you like to wait for a human to answer your question, even if the response time was really good, like under five Mm -hmm. minutes or something like that? Or would you like to get the correct answer to your question immediately? Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people would choose the latter. And Mm -hmm. so more than, you know, thinking about how to program the bot and how to get the bot to say the correct things, a lot of the design problem for us became thinking about 
looking at the question itself and deciding, is this even appropriate? Mm -hmm. Internally, we had this concept of answerability. Should we consider this something that a bot could or should answer? And so it suddenly becomes a more of a question of routing. And of course, when you have a an answerable question, you need the bot to service that answer in a in a good way. And there's a lot of work still, I think, to be done around that, and a lot of um, design discovery that we still need to do to find out what works and what doesn't. Uh, but it's more of a of a nuanced view rather than like all humans all the time or you know bot all the things, yeah. which I think was what really led to the. Um, the crash in the hype cycle yeah. sometime around, you know, the end of 2016, uh, there was this, na- a lot of the early approaches were very naive where, where people were trying to apply bots to problems that they weren't very well suited to. And do you think like, you know, in the case of operator is the nuance around like, like there are some frankly like, you know, transactional questions we might receive. Like, do you have an iOS SDK? The answer is like, yes, it's like it where versus something like, hey, I'm running a, program of work where we're considering improving our business but if you know and mm-hmm. you can sort of see well hang on this question contains a lot of context unique to you whereas other questions contain a lot of specificity around intercom and i think like we're you know it would be clear enough to me that like operator can definitely answer the latter category when because it's not the user's not bringing a lot of unique context to them so the the yeah, chances are we know the answer you know we don't need to hear more do you think that's like where we are for the moment or do you think you know we'll be able to go further I take the the kind of Buddhist approach to bots in that they're this, uh, as in most technology thing, they're in this eternal state of being born. So obviously there's always more room for them to continually get better and they will. I think a lot of what we learned about the mechanics of putting it together is um, when you're building a machine learning system, uh, a lot of the uh, magic and challenge in putting that together is in training the system and helping the system to bootstrap itself. And if you're a smaller business mm-hmm. and you have a you know low throughput of questions coming in on which to train the bot, that's a challenge. And so we found ourselves having to design in the back end of our tool interfaces that allow the, the bot to gradually get trained so that right. it can start to you know just get that system up and running where it can get to the point where it's learned enough about questions and answers yeah. to, to start stepping in and providing yeah. answers itself. Paul, in 2018, do you want to make another proclamation about bots? (laughs) More of the same or? Um, I think they're going to grow up more next year than they did this year. And what I I mean by that is that um, I think we'll see more uses of them. I think people will encounter them more and there'll be more uses of them. Like like Emmett said, a lot of this is about um, whether the bots have data sets they can learn over. I think, at least for us, I mean, it's hard to know what's going on inside other companies, but... Um, at least for us, I think we've spent a lot of this year figuring out how they work, how to make them work. Yeah. Uh, I think we now are at a point, especially with Operator, where it is working in mm-hmm. different contexts. We've lots of ideas for how it might work in the future better. Next year, I think we'll see those things come to fruition. And and I only imagine that other companies are doing similar. You know, And even, yeah. even like some little things we're seeing here and there yeah. towards the end of this year would suggest that there's new use cases opening up where bots are providing better service than humans could. Yeah. Or faster at the very least. Faster, yeah. I think our approach has generally been like to see the value and, and to bet on the trend in certain ways, but to not at any time to attempt to overreach. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're constantly trying to push it as far as we can, given what we can do with the technology. And that is always going to change from year to year. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript 
It's a new series of candid conversations with Intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode 1 is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt-or-die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service, and it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right, and see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. Obviously, we released a bot which contained a lot of new design components. And as you said earlier, Paul, we also released 150 other things which were held together by the, the design process that you described earlier, Emmett. I know this year we released our first actual proper internally, our first like full stack design system. And I know design systems are kind of flavor du jour, or at least flavor du early 2016 anyway, or early 2017. Why did we go ahead and formalize all this? Was it a lot of work? Was it, was it like, you know, sort of yak shaving or was there actual value there? What happened? Intercom is at some level um, a series of workflows made up from the same pieces reused again and again. And that's really a path that we're attempting to take from a design point of view towards building something that's very powerful, but simple at the Mm -hmm. same time. And so design systems seemed very well suited towards achieving that. I, I fully believe in trying to get in touch with other people in the industry and ask them, hey, you know, you might be a year or two in scale or in growth yeah. uh, age ahead of where we're at and tell me about all the mistakes you made over the mm-hmm. last couple of years so I can learn from your mistakes. And when I talked to lots of people, they were all building design systems, but they looked a lot like the things that you saw publicly available, like Twitter bootstrap yeah, or right. material design. Right. And it, I was really struck with the fact that like the purpose of something like that which is to allow thousands and tens of hundreds of thousands maybe of developers to build using the same set Mm -hmm. of tools is very different to what an in-house design system should be for, which is probably to to allow like tens of designers to build one product, not thousands of designers to build thousands of products. Were they oversolving the problem or were they not being specific enough to themselves? I think more the latter, right? Right. Because you take inspiration from what you can see publicly out there. I've never seen directly... Twitter's internal design system, but I've seen what they shared publicly. And so that's what you take your inspiration from. So for us, the thing that was, you know, really held a lot of promise, and this is what I was aiming for with the full stack design system is look at, look at this and and see if you can infuse the system throughout all of the um, different layers of, of work that your product is made up of. So 
the APIs and the code and the design objects that you use to design things and even the names that you give things inside your product and inside your help docs. And if you can just make that system be a lot more specific rather than about a bunch of generic buttons and drop downs and so on, then you can speed up the workflows kind of stands to reason because you're, you, they're very custom built. They're very bespoke for, for purpose. So by full stack in this case, you mean like that if you're looking at a conversation, there's like, here's how conversations are designed. Here's the code for this. Here's the sketch file for this. Here's the CSS for this. Here's everything you could possibly need to generate a conversation. And PS, it's called a conversation in every single way. Right. That's right. Okay. Right. Exactly. That, that makes sense. So I can see then how like that, that necessitates, but also provides a lot more specificity done. Hey, here's a background or whatever, right? Like, or here, here's a header, you know? Right. Another shift this year, uh, which is connected to operator, we opened the London office. We went from like kind of one R&D office to initially a second in London. And that obviously has a lot of uh, changes. I've I said recently on Twitter, like one, going from one floor to two floors is a big change, but going from one office to two offices is, is a pretty big change. Why do we do that? And what have we learned, Paul? Yeah. I mean, the reasons we did it are kind of the things you'd expect, uh, everyone would expect to hear. We're growing really fast, and in order to fulfill our potential, we uh, need to hire lots of great people. They're not all in Dublin, or, nor are they going to relocate to Dublin. People have families and commitments in all sorts of other countries. And so I think opening an office outside of Dublin, an R&D office outside of Dublin, where we build product, was somewhat an inevitability, you know, if we continue to grow as fast as we have done. And then we were looked at, like, all different places we could go, and London became the clear winner because, A, there's amazing talent there, you know, I worked in London myself, uh, lived there years ago, worked at Flow and Google there. I just knew from my own experience, there's like fantastic people we could hire there. And, you know, it's close to Dublin, we can fly over and back. And, you know, a lot of the things that, again, I'd personally experienced that I would not want to emulate, I think with a London office, we can actually have the best of both worlds. And then we since obviously gone and opened an SF or in the office. So we'll, we'll, we'll yeah. learn even more, no doubt, along the way. <laughs> How consistent do we want the London product team to be like is it same process worldwide like would you be confident you could swap engineers and designers around and they'd know exactly how to work and all that how does that work yeah yeah and it's interesting because I think you need to think about the things people talk about and so if like if you if you go to London or go to San Francisco or be in Dublin and find everyone talking about process that's a pretty bad outcome because mm-hmm. they're not talking about product yeah. right and so you know or, or you know even worse th- these are all P words actually that I realise politics like if you're talking about politics and not, not government politics company politics that's yeah. even worse and you know large parts of my experience at Google in London working with Mountain View which, mm-hmm. which is where the headquarters and then that were and then I subsequently moved there was, you know, it was a lot of politics. It was a lot of talking about like how teams didn't work together. And right. I think one of the reasons for that were the teams were split across locations. So when I was working in the UX team in London, I was working with engineers in Canada, in uh, Mountain View. And so, and that was like, you know, we weren't a totally remote company, so we weren't set yeah. up really to do that well. So what for us, you know, what we're optimizing for is, A, that the teams are independent of each other and of the location. So, yeah. you know, educate as a team in London, operator as a team in London, of course, they work with teams in Dublin, they collaborate, but they're basically designed to be as independent as possible. Mm-hmm. And then sex, they're not talking about politics, as we would hope, um, because they just are free to get their work done. And there's local leadership is not a big theme. Like we want right. strong local leaders who lead yeah. the office there, run the thing. And then similarly, the process is the same. So again, if they follow the same process as Dublin and then San Francisco, yeah. we benefit because they just talk about products. 
Emmett, you also worked remote. Um, you worked in multiple teams. How do designers collaborate remotely? Is it Air Miles or is it Skype or what is it? Yeah, well, one thing I noticed is uh, you noticed what you did there. You said you worked remotely, which which yeah, yeah, is totally. different, right? I worked yes. in a in a satellite office. I worked in Google um, in the design team at the same time as Paul, and we knew each other. But I kind of experienced it on both sides of the divide in that I was in the Zurich office initially mm-hmm. and collaborating with a team over in Mountain View. And uh, then I relocated myself to Mountain View. And certainly the center of gravity in terms of power and decision making just naturally is in the head office there. Mm-hmm. And it was incredibly frustrating when you're on the wrong side of that divide. To answer your question, the absolute number one way in one of the you know most technologically advanced companies in the history of the world is to get on a plane and yeah. go speak to the person face to face there's just no substitute for that and in fact like we had several instances in projects where things just came to a head and you're like you know what someone has to get on a plane and we need to work this out in person and as soon as you can do that so many tensions just dissolve and you see that person on the other end of the email mm-hmm thread as a human again and so that is the real answer that was part of the reason why i think we also chose london initially is that it's very easy to maintain same time zone short flight away big day trips yeah we've taken day trips over and back you know so we will have lots of those little teething problems to iron out but we'll have ample opportunity to like do so and i think that experience that maybe both of us had kind of made me anyway hypersensitive to it and there's so many little tiny things that you have to keep in mind, like not forgetting to invite, you know, Mm -hmm. people in that other office um, to the meetings or, you know, we're we're organizing our Christmas party. Like, how do you include the people from that office? And and, and just not forgetting to do it rather than having to be reminded really is important to establishing them not as some kind of like second class office, not as a remote office, but as a sister office totally that's really important I think yeah and even like just I find myself correcting myself so often people say how many offices does Intercom have and I'm like I'm at pains now like to be like oh, well we've offices in London and Chicago and you know mm-hmm. uh, even like I know when we say like things like the R&D team we tend to still our, our minds still go to one office instead of three mm-hmm. Paul uh, you had a recent tweet which got a surprising amount of engagement given that I was talking about sales for you. Uh, <laughs> you said that basically a lesson you learned the hard way and the blunt way and the wrong way, frankly, was that you need to talk to your sales team, you need to talk to your sales leaders, you yeah. need to talk to your front people on the ground in sales. Yeah. I know you recently did a sales day where you sat with our like you know frontline account executives and sales development representatives. And it all seems to have been some sort of road to Damascus type moment for you where now you're into sales. <laughs> what the fuck happened? Yeah, yeah. I think it's uh, probably uh, something that was growing in my mind and maybe the sales day that we that I did, that we do here, was the motivation for the tweet, at least. It's kind of a funny one, you know, like throughout most of my career, the two areas of the company that many, many product teams ignore, and, and by the way, like lots of people listening to this would be like, I don't ignore them. I'm like, yeah. really? Like, when did you last talk to somebody in those teams? Mm-hmm. And that's sales and support. Mm-hmm. And many people like pay them lip service and say they do talk to them or they are connected to them. And actually in reality, mm-hmm. yeah. they're not. And they never talk to them. And the irony is that these are the two teams that talk to customers mm-hmm. and every day, all day. And, you know, we've had a long standing relationship with our support team here where like they input heavily into our roadmap process. I've had a grow, we've had a growing one with the sales team over the last kind of year or two. Mm-hmm. And it's matured as our sales team has grown because you know, the sales team is also a somewhat relatively newer function in Intercom. But only, you know, these things just get real when you end up on a sales call and talking to the t- people in the sales team. 
you know, I was listening on a couple of sales calls and like the and that level of insight, the you know, subtleties and nuances that customers are talking about, how the sales team had to talk to them. Like there's just, I, I was sitting there going like, how do we turn these hundreds of sales calls we're having into product insight that we can turn into product? Right. And, you know, I don't have any answers to how we do that. Like we're working on it and we had things in place before, but it was just more the insight to me was like, you know, there's like research happening mm-hmm. in your company all day, every day. And most product teams are not tapping into it. Is that like, I mean, I I feel like it's not that long ago we, I was running marketing and myself and Matt came over and gave a big presentation about why product might like listen to marketing every now and then. <laughs> uh, is there just a nature of like product teams to be a little bit like, I don't, I want to say positively, maybe introverted. Another way of saying it, maybe like that they're up their own ass and they just think that they can product their way out of everything. Yeah. Is, like what's going on here is such that like, you know, that it is, and it, it does frankly sound like it, but like the fact that we're saying it's something of a revelation, like, hey, let's listen to the sales team. Mm. Why is it like this doesn't come naturally to product teams who would otherwise be, they'd see themselves as like empathetic and, you know, and research driven and all those sort of nice phrases? Yeah, I don't know. You know, I think one of the one of the causes probably in most companies is just that the organizations are siloed. It's like organizational yeah. design, you yeah. know, and like even in Intercom, like you said earlier, we split up over two floors this mm-hmm. year. Um, and we've actually got four wings, basically. Yeah. And, you know, guess what? The sales team sits on a different wing to the product yeah. teams. And I'm only realizing that now. And you're like, well, you know, maybe that's part of the problem, right? Like, literally, if you have people sitting beside each other. Overhearing sales calls and stuff. Right? Yeah, yeah. And in the same micro kitchens and just talking, yeah. you might actually start to break down these barriers and people would start to realize, the, I guess, the eureka moment that I had. Right. Okay, let's wrap up. Emmett, I'll start with you. We spend a lot of time at Intercom talking about lessons learned and sharing these lessons on our blog and on our world tour and stuff like that. I'm going to do the horrible thing and distill it down to a single one. If there was one thing for you for 2017, looking back, what would it be? I think I kind of realized that there's almost nothing massively new under the sun, just different flavors of the same problems, maybe even different flavors of the same solution Mm -hmm. as well when you get down to like what you actually design and ship. And so I realized that I still had an awful lot to learn about some of the basic stuff like um, managing and building teams that, you know, you don't necessarily need to reinvent everything from first principles when it comes to just providing a a good, healthy working environment and, and setup and processes for the people that are on your teams. And I found that uh, there was a ton I could learn from talking and reading about how other people solve those problems. So people management to the next level, basically? That's essentially it. I don't know if I'm at the next level yet. Well, but, yeah, um, that, that's the plan. <laughs> Paul, same question with more intensity. Uh, <laughs> give me one thing that totally transformed your life in 2017 from a professional perspective that you learned. Yeah, it's actually very similar to Emmett's, you know. I learned about people, you know, and what I mean by that is that I learned how or I taught myself about how people work. And that was obviously something that's been like dominant throughout my career, but um, like as I worked as a researcher for years and, and so on. But this year, you know, we grew up, you know, and a lot, a lot of other companies in that are fast growing like ours might have similar stories, but I think we um, grew up in a bunch of ways. And for me, like all the books I read this year were about people, managing people, teams, how you build teams, teamwork. There was no like producty books in there, design books. Like I kind of lost my, I don't know, design nerd brain or whatever. Yeah. And instead adapted this new like, people nerd brain, you know, is that, a, yeah. is that a thing? People nerd brain? People nerd brain is definitely a thing. There's no denying that. All right, I got it. Give us a random tactic. Like what's something you do now that you didn't do a year ago? 
I talk to people way more. Right. You know, like I have one-to-ones religiously. I don't skip yeah. them or cancel them or decide yeah. that the design review is more important than the yeah. one-to-one I've got. Yeah. Um, I listen way more. I wait. I, you know, again, like I can get excited and start talking and, and I listen. I try and learn. I also realized how little I know about a lot of this stuff, mm-hmm. you know, like early on in the year. And again, to Emmett's point, like you don't need to reinvent the wheel here. There's like yeah. fantastic resources out there. You know, psychology is an old field. Like there's lots to learn from things that are 100 years old, 50 years old. For sure. Okay, well, that's our wrap for 2017. Uh, Emmett and Paul, thank you very much. And we we can't wait to see all your predictions turn wrong next year. (laughs) Yeah, thanks. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com.